Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. If you like a middle grade adventure novel starring a detective, like, say, I don't know, Kazu Jones, for example, you might like Banneker Bones. <laughs> you might try that out. Uh, it's an 11-year-old biracial boy detective and his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth. Uh, they've been, um, they're meeting for the first time in Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, and so, uh, dealing with all the drama that entails from suddenly being forced to share your room with your cousin whom you've never met before. Uh, and poor Ellicott, who's come from small town Indiana to live with Banneker Bones, is suddenly surrounded by robots and attacked by giant robot bees. Naturally, the boys have no choice but to put on jetpacks, chase after the bees, shut them down with EMP blast rifles. It's a good time. It's like all the Marvel movies packed into one book. Uh, and if you like Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, make sure you check out the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming third uh, Banneker Bones adventure that's still yet to be revealed, but will be revealed early uh, in 2020, and then I won't be able to stop talking about it. Uh, if you're curious, you can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as a paperback, an audiobook, narrated by the exquisite David Radke, uh, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, and its companion piece, All Right Now, a short zombie story. Uh, it's my young adults, uh, teens versus zombies. Uh, I figure teens are the perfect folks to take on zombies because zombies. Uh, our fear of zombies, in part, is a fear not only of death, but of conformity, because once a zombie bites you, you become exactly like that. And I don't think there's anybody that's more aware of coming conformity than a teen who's about to become an adult and who's more terrified of conformity. Uh, so if you want to check that out, it's all together now, a zombie story. Uh, and then if you want to blow past the adult and go straight for the most adult thing I've ever written, check out The Book of David. The Book of David is a five-volume serial horror novel. So it's chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. But don't let that fool you. Chapter five is actually the longest novel I've ever written. Uh, so it's five uh, five books about one story. An atheist purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is as bonkers as that pitch makes it sound, and it just gets crazier each chapter. If you want to dip your toe in and see me do my best Stephen King impersonation, check out The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. That is available as a paperback, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, coming up on the show next week, I'll be talking with somebody amazing. Uh, I don't try and announce who the next guest will be, but you can keep up with the shows that is as they're being recorded at middlegradeninja.com. That'll give you an idea of who's coming up in the future. Uh, if you listen to the show, you like the show, and you yourself are an author or a publishing professional and you want to be on, you just wish I'd hurry up and invite you, don't wait for me. I'm incredibly slow, uh, and I have a, a never-ending uh, list of authors and publishing professionals I'm longing to talk to. Email me at bannockerbones at gmail.com. Just head to middlegradeninja.com. Email me. Let me know you'd like to be on the show. Let's make this beautiful thing happen. Uh, today, I couldn't be more excited. We're going to be talking with the author of Kazu Jones, uh, Shana Holio. Uh, Shana, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, clearing the time to be here tonight. Uh, so probably the best place to get started uh, is if you would just give uh, esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background. Okay, so um, my name is Shauna Holyoke, and I'm the author of the Kazu Jones mystery series. The first book in the series, Kazu Jones and the Denver Dognappers, just came out in April of this year with Disney Hyperion. And the second book in the series, Kazu Jones and the Comic Book Criminal, will come out next April. Um, I'm from Idaho Falls, and I live with five of our seven children and two naughty dogs. I got a master's degree from BYU Provo um, in English literature with an emphasis in creative writing, although I don't know if that helped me to become a better writer at all. Um, it did enable me to teach some classes. I was able to teach creative writing and um, freshman comp. And for about a year online, I taught young adult lit, and that was super fun. So that made it worth it. But um, I wrote a humor column for about 10 years where I talked about my kids and my husband, um, all the embarrassing details about our family life. And yeah, I was a freelance writer for a while before I decided to turn all my attention to fiction about seven years ago. What uh, kind of freelance writing were you doing? Um, I wrote it's really boring accounting newsletters for an accounting school. Um, I did that. I was a single mom for about five years. And so I did that to support me and my kids and the column. The column didn't do anything to support us. I made very little on the column, but it was fun and it was creative. It kept me kind of in the creative loop. So that helped me quite a bit. And then uh, you said you were teaching writing during that same time as well? Yeah, after I got my master's degree, I stayed and I worked for a little bit at BYU and I taught part time. And um, I also taught to kind of pay my way through graduate school. So I taught freshman comp in the beginning and then I was able to teach honors English. That's just freshman comp but for honors students and then um, creative writing, a 218 level class. And yeah. So what uh, what a teaching uh, of writing bring to your writing? I, I love teaching and freshman comp wasn't as fun as creative writing. And um, I always said that I would teach, I would teach 100% of the time if I didn't have to grade because grading is really hard and it's time consuming. And I'm a slow reader and I feel the need to like comment on everything. So is especially a slow process for me, but creative writing was super fun to teach and grade. Um, it's just being in this creative environment where everybody's thinking of ideas and I just think it's contagious. And I fed off of that creative energy and they're excited because this is one of the first classes that they've ever taken in creative writing. And so they're excited and um, it's just a really great energy in a class. So I, I loved it. It, it just inspired me, and um, it was fun to be with them. Yeah, I love getting yeah. to work with young writers that don't have uh, jaded woulda, coulda show stories that you might meet at a yeah. conference. Like, I was this close to getting this deal, and that almost it's happened, a and that book didn't get the support it should have. Like, but if you get me a fresh, what's still wet behind the ears, I'm so excited to be a writer 
uh, student, oh, that's the most fun person to work with because they make you excited again and remind you that before you cared about all the business of being an author, you, you genuinely cared about the fun of writing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was just super fun. So was that a uh, phase in your life behind you now, you think? Or is there a chance you might uh, continue teaching at some point? Oh, I would love to go back. Um, I would love to go back at some point if I could. There's actually a school about 30 minutes away. Um, but I live in Idaho Falls where winters are scary and a 30 minute commute can be like can take hours. So I'd have to figure that out first, maybe after my kids all graduated. But yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to get back to teaching. Gotcha. How, uh, how far are you from uh, an empty nest at this point? So, so we're a blended family and all of my kids are in high school now. So I have two more left. My 18 year old just graduated, moved out and I'm commandeering his old bedroom and turning it into my office. But I have a 17 year old who's graduating this year, um, well in 2020. And then I have a 15 year old who graduates in two and a half years. And, and we have another 17 year old who's graduating in 2020. That's my husband's um, daughter, my stepdaughter, and then a 14 year old and a 12 year old. So we're a few years away from being a, a empty nest, but in two and a half years, the kids that are here all the time will be gone during the week, which is really, it's already kind of strange um, to go from a full house to slowly have it empty out. And teenagers are hardly around anyway. So it's just weird to go from cooking like big plates of lasagna to being like, so grilled cheese tonight? <laughs> <laughs> breakfast again for dinner like I don't know I, it's really weird I don't know how to take care of them because they're so few and anyway so it's a weird thing well you can still but, make the big lasagnas and then just have more <laughs> that's true well and if my kids would eat leftovers I have one who will eat leftovers so he always feels burdened he's like oh there's so much cheesy potatoes in the fridge and I'm like yeah go get it <laughs> So, well, I know the, uh, the fantasy is once I can get a little bit of a quiet house and, and really focus on my writing, that's going to be amazing. And I was so excited when my five-year-old started uh, school full, full time. Uh, so, oh, finally, my afternoons are returned to me. And then, of course, for the first week, she said, I wish he was here. I miss him. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Everything changes. And then, yeah, and then you're just nostalgic for what used to be. Yeah. I feel you. Here's a burning question, because it's an excuse that I try to eliminate from my students, and it's an excuse I try to eliminate for myself, is that excuse that I have a child. I can't write. I'm busy. So you, Shana Holyoke, who have five children living with you and at, at, at different points have had more, how have you been able to write and stay prolific as a single mom and, and, and now with a full house? So I thought about that a lot. I wasn't writing fiction when my kids were little. I was freelance writing and my youngest was three. Um, and it was a, it was a problem. And I couldn't, I found myself like once I remarried, I was able to, it was funny how I was able to all of a sudden be like, well, I can't anymore. Like I can't, I'm so all of a sudden I can't focus and it's fiction and so it's different but at the time I had to put food on the table and so I had to turn in these articles that I was writing and so I would take him to any playland with wi-fi 
So McDonald's in our area has free Wi-Fi. So I'd go to McDonald's and we'd buy like chicken nuggets and fries. And he would just go crazy for like two and a half, three hours. And I found that I was able to write through the chaos a lot better than I am now that I'm used to the quiet. Um, there's a place called Blast Off where I remember Tuesdays and Thursdays were like two bucks from 11 to one. And I could take him and he'd go play in the ball pit and this big like um like gerbil thing like you know the what is i don't even know like a playland but it felt like just this ginormous gerbil track and he would play there for two hours while i would do my writing and i need to get back into that mindset i think where every little bit of time i can i can get stuff done like i think now i feel like i need at least this huge block of quiet time where i can you know, create and, and write lots of words. But I realized back in the day, I, I could crank out, you know, 600 to 800 words while my son was going to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, like I could figure out how to steal time and make it valuable. And I need to get back to that place. So it's a dangerous thing, this uh, myth that I do, and I know other writers do, the myth of the perfect writing day. Eventually, I'm going to have the perfect the perfect day, the perfect space. Everything will be right. My coffee will be just the right temperature. I'll have exactly the perfect song playing. And now, beautiful prose takes hold. And, of course, when I have those moments, I just stare at the screen. Like, I really need a distraction to get me <laughs> spurred exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I just went to a writer's retreat, and... Um, one of the people there was talking about how she loves, you know, the whole idea of the sprint or the timed right. And um, I think I realized that if I do have a shorter amount of time that I feel like, okay, so you're going to take 45 minutes and you're going to write as much as you can in 44 minutes. And then you're going to 45 minutes and then you're going to go do laundry or whatever else is distracting me. Um, I get so much more done than if I feel like I have three hours, I'm just going to write however much I'm inspired to write and um yeah I get more done when I time myself and when I have smaller snippets of time I don't know what that's about for me for my brain but um I'm learning to run with it <laughs> so about 45 minutes just straight through yeah 45 minutes and then I say okay 30 minutes I'm going to do something completely different like you know vacuum my living room or fold clothes switch out laundry or go into my kids scary bathroom upstairs and see what <laughs> needs to be done but um yeah and then i find i don't know i think there's something about that break from my brain i mean i still try to think about it and it helps me to stop on a on a break like if i finish a scene and then to think about okay so what needs to happen in the next scene and then i i'm able to hit the ground running instead of what i usually do is sit at my computer and think now what happens and then i get stuck there longer for some reason so that's been super helpful for me it's been like oh one of those moments so on those 30 minute breaks when you're doing the dishes or, or what have you uh cleaning your your kid's scary bathroom um <laughs> are you listening to a podcast such as this one or are you are you keeping everything uh clear out of your head so you can really focus your thoughts on the story um, I haven't been using anything, but that doesn't mean it's like a new thing I'm trying. So it doesn't mean that I, that I wouldn't start doing something. I've created a playlist for the current whip that I'm working on. And so 
that's kind of fun because it's kind of a scary story. So I have kind of spooky music and it's been fun to listen to that and see how it gets me into the, into the mood. But um, I haven't been listening to anything with words, <laughs> if that makes sense, at least not so far, but that might change. It's something that I'm kind of playing with as far as becoming more productive. So do you create a, an individual playlist for each project? No, this is the first. Well, it's not the first time I created one for a project that never went anywhere. I was kind of obsessed with it and um, it was YA fantasy. And in talking to my agent, we decided to focus more on middle grade. Um, but for a while, I was really kind of thinking about this story. So I created a playlist and um, but it's the first one that I've been able to listen to while I'm actually working on it. So um, it's kind of fun. It's but as long as it doesn't become distracting and then I'm, instead of writing time, I'm thinking, now what songs should I add to my playlist? Because sometimes <laughs> that preparatory stuff, I get too caught up in that. It's too easy to like dive in and become completely distracted. <laughs> so what kind of uh, spooky music are you listening to to put you in that frame of mind? Um, I actually put out a call on Facebook and asked people um, like what kind of stuff they consider spooky. Um, I have to open it to look at, like I said, I'm really bad with names and like remembering stuff, but um, yeah, people, people are aware of lots of spooky stuff. I'm not super hip. And so um, somebody said that everybody, all my old friends were recommending like old school songs. So he was trying to recommend more like hipper stuff. <laughs> And so I created a playlist because I did want to, I wanted to mention some of these spooky songs in the manuscript to kind of add to the atmosphere. And so I'm listening to it to try to figure out which ones might work best. So um, oh, I'm trying to think of who, who everybody was saying is spooky because she only sings like three notes. Oh, what's her name? See, I'm not hip. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, so it's kind of fun. A lot of the people I'd never heard of before. So, gotcha. Well, I've got the soundtrack to It Follows that I keep uh, in a playlist oh, just for cool. scary stuff. No words, yeah. just jarring noises. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there are there are a lot of spooky soundtracks too. And because sometimes I get distracted by words, like I can't listen to music with words when I write because it's too distracting. But I can listen to just instrumental stuff. Or I love um, Ambient Mixer. Have you ever seen, have you ever been on Ambient Mixer? You yeah, can like that? listen to, it's like has all these different um, types of themed like ambient noise. Like you can listen to the Hufflepuff Commons Room or the Hogwarts Library. Um, I'm listening to Spooky Forest right now. And then somebody told me um, the Louisiana Swampland, like at night. And so I listen to that and that's kind of spooky. It's got a spooky vibe, but you can just about anything you can find there. I think there's like supernatural, like driving in their car and listening to their kind of music. Like there's just about anything that you can think of. And then people can put together their own um, ambient sounds. Like they can add owls and add, you know, footsteps and the clinking of a spoon in a teacup. It's super cool. But um, yeah, I like to search those and find ambient noise because that doesn't bother me as much as like songs with music. I mean, with words. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Check that cool. out. Yeah. 
Um, when we're talking about teachers, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, because I noticed something in your bio that uh, I know that a lot of the folks that listen to the show are either teachers or have been inspired by teachers who taught them writing. And you had a senior high school English teacher, right? I want to get it right. You should be an author uh, at the top of a personal essay. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so for all those teachers that are listening, how did that uh, inspire you to become an author? And how long did the process take from there? So it took forever from there, but um, I don't know. Teachers have so much power um, in encouraging kids to look at themselves in ways that they never had before. I was an avid reader. I read all the time. In fact, I feel like reading saved me in junior high when it was kind of a scary time and um, kids can be kind of mean to each other. I felt like I kind of retreated into books and it kind of carried me through some hard times in high school. So I loved to read. And I think it's funny because my daughter is 17 and she wants to become a writer and an agent or an editor. And it's interesting, her and her friend both like to write, but I think because they're avid readers, they have this innate understanding of how writing works, how stories work because they've read so much and they've also analyze so much like what works and what doesn't. So when I read their work, I'm always kind of blown away at how they know how to write. And I think that that's probably, um, I was a reader and so writing was something that I just wanted to do naturally. And I wrote, it was a personal essay and she left that comment on my paper and I just, um, it was a huge compliment. So I remember just floating, glowing for the rest of the day. And then just having that realization, oh, that's something I can do. Um, I loved writers, admired writers, but I couldn't imagine that I could become one of them. And so that was the first time that I realized that that was something that I could actually become or do because of a teacher. And so, um, yeah, teachers are amazing. I love teachers, librarians all that they do to inspire and encourage kids. I just, I wish that they could recognize their impact. I wish that I could even go back to this teacher. I've tried to find her and just to let her know how much what she said meant to me. So you get that note uh, and then that starts the wheels turning. Oh, I could be an author. So how long from then until you write your first uh, bona fide piece of fiction? So um, shortly after that, um, so I was a senior in English and I mean, I was a senior, I was a senior in high school and then I went to college and started taking all these English classes. And I remember my counselor called me in and she was like, look, I'm not going to make you declare a major, but let's just say English for now. And I never went back. So I became an English major. Um, I had a teacher who was a great mentor when I was at school who taught creative writing classes and a writing for publication class. And he asked us in the course of a semester to write um, a novel. I didn't finish it in the semester, but I went home that summer and I did, and it was really horrible. But um, <laughs> I think that those first books that you write, well, some people break out with their first books and that's amazing to me. Um, but I think that writing a novel can be a great exercise on how to write a novel. Like you're never gonna learn how to write a novel unless you actually do. You can read books about it, but the best way to learn how to write a novel is to try to write a novel. And so, um, so that was in college. I was probably 21 at the time, but then I didn't, well, for graduate school, I wrote short stories 
and my thesis was a compilation of short stories. And then I got my master's degree and I got married and it was a really hard marriage and I didn't write for a really long time. It was kind of a dark time. And it wasn't until I started to have kids and I was doing this blog, this mommy blog, that I thought, oh, I wonder if that could be something. And that's what became my column. And so I had a column for about 10 years. Most of it covered my time as a single mom, but it, like I said, it really helped me to write creatively, even though it wasn't fiction, it was still, I think, using that part of my brain and practicing. And so that was, I think that was super helpful. Plus I have all these crazy stories I would have forgotten about my kids when they were little and, you know, doing embarrassing things that I can now share with them. <laughs> And so you can go back and read it and relive the, the highlights of their childhoods. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't finish. So I guess I should probably finish. So I, it wasn't until, um, so I was a single mom and I freelanced and I had that column and it wasn't until I remarried that things kind of calmed down and I wasn't in charge of taking care of everybody all the time that I asked him, I was like, would it be okay if I just wrote fiction and I quit freelance and I went back to writing fiction. I wrote the second really bad novel, the YA novel that's set in Hawaii that you mentioned. It's horrible. But again, just practice it, learning how to write a novel. And then I think Did I even to tried to go to Hawaii for a little bit of research. No, I actually graduated from BYU Hawaii. And so that's, oh, okay. that's where that love came from. I was just trying to reminisce. But um, I think I even tried to query that and I'm just almost embarrassed that anybody even tried to read that. And then I got the idea for Kazu Jones only at the time it was my paper out and other deadly things. And so she's, how long was that? Um, 25 years. I, all that time. And then um, after I wrote Kazu Jones and the Denver dog nappers, um, I got my agent, Carrie Pastrito, who you, had um a podcast with she's awesome um i actually got amazing carrie Prestito, episode 50 esteemed audience when you finish listening to this episode check out the back catalog <laughs> well worth listening to episode 50 i'm oh, sorry yeah, and she has um she has um that's the ufo stories right that you guys that you guys have oh so, yeah all the, all the flying saucers all the simulation theory that that podcast is crazy Yes. She's so fun. She's awesome. But I got her through PitMad, which is a Twitter, a Twitter contest. And so, um, yeah. And then, and then after we did some revisions, we went on sub and, and sold it to Disney. So, so PitMad, but yeah, like, uh, put out a pitch on the, on the Twitter or what did you have to submit to get the ball rolling? I don't know. I don't know if pitch slam is even a thing anymore, but at the time you would, so they would pick so many like mentor authors and then you would get to submit 250, the very first 250 words of your story to like one of 10 authors. Uh, like you could, you could submit to like, well, I don't think it was that many. I think it was maybe three to five. And then they would choose a certain number and they would put that 250 on their blog and then there would be an agent round for like about three days. And then the agents would leave comments if they were interested in seeing it. It's crazy to me because it was only the first 250 words. That's not a lot to go on. There was like a pitch and then the first 250 words. And um, 
And so that's where Carrie, and I don't even think she was super interested in the beginning. She asked for like 10 pages. I had other people ask for the whole thing, but she asked for 10 pages. And eventually she asked for the whole thing. But something that not very many people know is the first, well, not the first draft, like the early version of that story was about kidnapping. And so I had an agent say, I love it, but it's too scary. It's contemporary and I can't sell a story about kidnapping because of where people's minds go when kids get swiped. And so um, she asked me to consider revising it to dog napping. And I was like, no, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. And so I didn't even really respond to her. And I had some friends who said, so what are you going to do about that? And I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't want it to be dog napping. And they were like, well, you should at least try. They heard who the agent was and they thought that she was, um, you know, a good agent. So I should at least try. So I did. And once I gave Kazu a dog with a personality and named him Genki, um, it became easy. And the rewrite wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And, um, so about the time that I sent that off to the agent who had requested it, Carrie sent me this really nice rejection letter where she said, you know, I really, I like it. I love Kazu's character, but, um, there's some this problems. With after you've done the revision that she requested. Yeah. But another agent had requested. And so oh, okay. Carrie, so Carrie sent me this nice rejection and she said, um, I have some problems with the plot and with the secondary characters, but if you ever choose to revise it, I'd love to see it. And I was like, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I just turned it into dog napping. Would you want to see it? And she was like, huh, that sounds really cheesy. Um, send it anyway. <laughs> so I sent it thinking this is a total bust. She doesn't want it. And um, the other agent ended up passing on it. But then a couple months, well, no, it was maybe a month later. It was during the Christmas season. It was right before Christmas when she requested it. And then after the new year, she said, hey, let's talk. And I was completely surprised because I, I totally had written her off because of the whole, yeah, no, but send it anyway. <laughs> so yeah, so then she offered to represent me and that's how we got started. So anybody that's willing to tell you that your uh, book is cheesy, that's somebody whose opinion you can trust? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and apologies, esteemed audience. I said episode 50 because that's fresh in my mind, but it's episode 43 uh, is my uh, my conversation with uh, Carrie uh, Pastrito. Uh, as soon as you finish listening to this, or I don't know, maybe work backward, listen from every episode to this back to 43, and then keep going. They're all great. <laughs> but you'll, that's right. you'll get lots of great information. So that's, I've got lots of questions about all these rewrites and things that you did, but I guess probably the best spot to start uh, is if you would just go ahead and give us, uh, I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books, so I try never to do that and make you sit through me summarizing it. How terrible would that be? Uh, if you would tell us a little bit about uh, Kazu Jones and the Denver Dognappers. Okay, so I'm not very good at pitching my own books, but Kazu Jones is a paper girl who loves to solve crime and it has is well known for being nosy and trying to track down clues and solve cases that she has no business getting involved in. And so when the dogs in her local Denver neighborhood start to go missing, obviously she thinks that she's the one who needs to find the bad guys and bring all the dogs back. Part of that has to do with her 
love for dogs. She has a dog named Genki that she adores. Um, she also walks the neighbor's dog. That's one of her jobs that she does. And she accidentally loses the neighbor's dog um, to she thinks the dog nappers. So in addition to wanting to save the dogs, she also feels a certain obligation because she feels like she lost the neighbor's dog and she needs to figure that out. And so with the help of her friend March, they try to track down clues. They end up growing their team as they go. And the closer that they get to the bad guys, the more it looks like Genki might be in danger. So that's kind of what that, you know, chaos, danger ensues. Fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a wonderful action-packed novel. It, it, it reads fast and it's, uh, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's not a comedy, but it's consistently amusing. You can definitely see the years of writing a humor column and, and their uh, impact a lot because I was laughing out loud several times while I was reading. Thank you. Uh, and you also do a great job of convincing the convincing me, I, I assume other uh, esteemed readers as well, uh, that Kazu Jones is the person for this mystery. Uh, it's right up her alley. One, she's the person for you know any mystery there in the area. Uh, but also, you're very good about giving her that personal connection with uh, not only her own dog, the dog she thinks she lost. And it's not the stakes are there. They're very high for Kazu uh, throughout. Uh, so how? How did you come to the name Kazu Jones? I think that's the place to start with a book like this where it's so much. I mean, obviously, she's got an entire supporting cast, but she's she's the main deal. Uh, how'd you start? How'd you come to that character? And how'd you come to that fantastic name? So I have a really good friend. She's Japanese. And her name is Kazuko Yanagisawa. And I... Um, adore her. She's, she's funny. She's spunky. She's energetic, adventurous. And I just wondered what she would have been like as a kid. Um, you asked the question about like, who, like what's the best kind of character to solve mysteries. And I think you need somebody who's, who's confident and who's um, adventurous and fearless. And I thought that she would be a good person to kind of model model a character after. Plus, I like her name. Kazuko is a fun, it's a fun name. And um, Kazuko Jones is Japanese American. Her mom is Japanese, um, second generation, and her dad is um, white, Caucasian American. And so she's, um, yeah, so she's biracial. Gotcha. And when you first started envisioning her, did you think this is someone who's going to star in multiple books or did you, was she the perfect star for just one book? At what point did you realize she was going to be um, the, the star of multiple novels? Um, I could see her as being in multiple novels, but you know, when we went on sub, I was just hoping to sell that one book. And so when Disney came back and said that they wanted to make it a two book deal, I was super excited because I had already started to imagine different you know, um, cases that she could get involved in. And um, so, yeah, so I was excited to revisit her character, to revisit all the characters and bring them back together again, because they've all been super fun to work with. And so with that, um, I know obviously you've got a two book deal for now, um, but do you have in the back of your mind ideas for three, four, five, and six or... I do. I at least have I at least have an idea for three, a tentative idea for four, um, but I don't want to, you know, counting your chickens. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. I just kind of keep it up there as, you know, those are ideas that I could use maybe someday, but we'll see how it goes. 
So at what point did you know that there would be two books? Is that after the first book's completely rewritten and rewritten and rewritten? Yeah, so you asked how many times I had rewritten it. And I like to tell kids at school visits because they can't believe that you would ever rewrite something so many times. But I think especially when it's the first, like when it's the book that you use to get your agent and maybe your first book deal, it gets polished a lot. So you go back to it a lot. But it was 20 times at least that I like renamed the file and added 20, um, Kazu Jones 20. <laughs> and so um, 20 times. Um, oh, gee, now I forgot your question. What was your? Oh, and so. I just wondered, at what point did you know that this was going to be a serious character? Was it after you were completely, the first book is completely done, 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 and sold? That you know yeah. that for sure there's going to be more? Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, the first book was done and sold. But it was nice because I knew that they wanted a two-book deal. So when I knew it, the second book was going to be about, I could at least go back and plant some things into the first book so that it didn't seem outrageous when they started to show an interest in what happens in the second book. So I was able to do that. Some things were naturally there already, but I was able to plant a few things to make sure that it didn't seem so, you know, surprising. Uh, let's see. And then um, knowing that you're writing about uh, a Japanese-American protagonist, a bi biracial girl, did you employ uh, cultural readers, sensitivity readers? How did you go about that? And how have you gone about marketing uh, a book? This is a question near and dear to my heart. Uh, as someone who is not um, Japanese-American. So... Um... I had, like I told you, I went to BYU-Hawaii for um, my degree. And um, so I had a lot of friends um, who are Japanese-American. And so I had them read it <clears throat> in the beginning. And then um, Disney hires a um, sensitivity reader. Um, and my sensitivity reader is Misa Sugiura, and she is she's a sensitivity reader but she's also an amazing author in her own right she's written um just to shout out for her um it's not like it's a secret and then i think her most recent book that was just published this year which is doing really well is um this time will be different she's a great author but she's also um gave me amazing feedback any any problems with rest of, uh representation that still exist are all mine i don't want to ever put that off under her. It, it's all mine, but she really helped me to see what needed to be changed. And, um, cause I have obviously not being Japanese American, I have huge blind spots. I don't know what it's like to be Japanese American. So there were some things that I had included in there that she was like, no, that's just not how it's not how it is. And so, um, yeah, so super grateful to her for that, for that help. Gotcha. Uh, and then, uh, oh, I had so many questions uh, about the book. I'm trying to think where to go next. Um, let's talk uh, a little bit about who is the ideal reader for this series. Probably um, eight to 12 year olds. Um, kids who like kids who like adventure. I also like to think that it might be a good book for reluctant readers, kids who have a harder time that maybe the um, fast paced actiony feel to it will draw them in um kids who love mysteries because i know that there are lots of kids out there who like mysteries um solving puzzles or um trying to figure stuff out so those kids would probably enjoy it too 
um, I think it might be good for like advanced younger readers too. I know I've had some parents say that their seven-year-old read it. And um, so, yeah, I think that it could probably go to young, a younger audience as well. It's one of those problems with those uh, age ranges that they put on books. So it's not all eight-year-olds are the same. Not all nine-year-olds are the same. You're going to get some very advanced ones, and you're going to get some 18-year-olds uh, or, heck, 40-year-old ninjas who still like to go back and, right. and read middle-grade right. books. <laughs> That's right. I'm still getting a, trying to get a couple of my teenagers to read it. I have my 15-year-old, and he's like, I just can't get past chapter three, and I'm trying not to take it personally. Like, ah. Uh. Chapter three. Get past chapter three. <laughs> well, when the graduation ceremony happens, just peace out after five minutes. I just couldn't get past it. Sorry. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but it's tempting. <laughs> uh, and so knowing that this started out originally as my paper route and other deadly things, um, how much did that did uh, changing from kidnapped children to kidnapped dogs impact you? What still remains consistent about the story? Or are we now talking about a whole new animal? Um, you know, you you would think it was a huge revision. Like I can't. It was it was an overhaul. But there were a lot of things that I was able to keep. And um, one of the things, like Carrie said when she read it, that she felt like the secondary. Um, characters were problematic and it's probably because they kept getting kidnapped like they couldn't stick around because they were getting swiped as part of the story and so once they <laughs> stuck around um, I was able to develop their relationship a little bit more um, so that so that played a huge role I had to make sure that this cast got developed and um, but some of the things some of the things remained the same um, I do remember Carrie, one of the revisions she wanted me to make after um, I became her client was she felt like some of the stakes had lessened a little bit because, you know, kidnapping, that's high stakes. Kids missing, that's a pretty big deal. And so she felt like it needed a little bit more weight. And so she wanted me to make it clear what was going on with these dogs so that you could see how scary it was. And so I added like a newspaper article addressed um some of the things that were happening to the dogs like the dog fighting and the um breeding i think i talked about like a, a place that had been busted where they were breeding dogs and there were all these little dogs kept in crates and then i added this series of scenes where the kids are in um, an abandoned amusement park where they stumble upon where um they're holding the dogs for dog fights and um it's interesting because that scene that Carrie, and she didn't suggest what I add. She just said I needed to add something to increase the stakes so they could see what was going on and what could happen to these dogs. And so I added those scenes and that still is like one of my favorite series of scenes are the abandoned amusement park scene. And um, that's because Carrie was like, you gotta increase the stakes now that it's not kids anymore. So, so yeah. And obviously with, uh, and in, I mean, it's, it's a book that's for everybody, but intended 
uh, are being at least targeted to a middle grade audience. Uh, it's not like you can, you know, put the dogs in torture devices and it suddenly becomes a Saw movie for a couple of chapters. Um, <laughs> there, there are lines you can't cross. Um, so how do you keep the stakes consistently high, not only for this first mystery, but now a second as well, without crossing some of those lines? Oh, I think that the editors are the ones that tell me that I can't cross lines <laughs> because I think I try to make it as scary as I can. I think I've gotten better at like knowing what my limit is. But um, in the second book, I just got some edits back and my editor was like, so you talk about like I was describing a comic book, the cover of a comic book. And I talked about how like the vigilante had the lifeless body of the lady slung over his shoulder. And she was like, yeah, lifeless isn't good. You need to change that. That's too scary. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so sometimes it surprises me what what they ask to change and what actually goes through. Because um, sometimes things that I think, OK, this is really scary. Um, they don't touch it. But then other things like that, like lifeless, it's like, no, you've got to change that kind of surprised me. So honestly, I just think that I try to make it um, as scary and as, um, although I do have boundaries because I have kids and I read to my kids all the time. And I used to know like when things were getting too much. And so I do have my own internal barometer, I guess, but um, I'm grateful for an editor who knows the market well enough that she's like, whoa there and I'll listen to her. Um, usually. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> well, some you you might not be able to answer this or might not want to, uh, but I'm going to ask it and you can just say, I don't want to reveal my secrets. But if okay. you've got something where you know it's on the edge a little bit uh, and you really want to include it, do you then write something else that's far beyond that so that the editor has something easy that they can ask you to cut and then that preserves your thing that's a little bit on the edge? No, but I'll have to do that now. That's a good, that's a good strategy. I'll write that down. Note to self. <laughs> <laughs> if you could cut the serial killer murders three kids scene, that'd be great. What about lifeless? No, lifeless is fine. Keep that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, but you know what? This is funny because this is actually, so I got the idea for Kazu Jones and the Denver Dog Numbers because my kids, my three kids all had paper routes. And so we were all getting up early in the morning and doing the same thing that caused was. I was driving them around because it's really dark and cold in Idaho Falls. And so I based a lot of what happened on the paper route on what happened with my kids. And there was actually a super spooky house on my daughter's route that I based Geezer's house on. Um, same, it looks, it looked exactly the same and like enshrouded with trees and it was painted dark brown and they never left their lights on and it was super spooky, which since that house has been sold and they've re-landscaped it and it's a whole new house and it makes me kind of sad that it's not spooky anymore. But, um, one of the details from book one, I took from an actual story here in Idaho Falls, there was a little girl. So back in the day, um, the local paper used to make kids collect money from their from the customers and they'd have to go collect payments which is ridiculous to make them collect payments from these grown-ups but this one girl actually disappeared and she was killed by this crazy guy on a route and i so i allude to that i in the in the in the first book and they 
Um, I think I may have said that she was killed in like the first version. And then my editor was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you can't, you cannot say anything about what happened to her. Um, so I think I ended up saying that she disappeared, but still that's scary. That's still pretty scary. But that actually is based on a real thing that happened here in our county. And they stopped that practice of having kids collect money um, because of that. That's crazy. I know. And I was like, but it really happened. And my editor was like, I don't care. <laughs> it's too scary. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> Killed, you know what happened, disappeared. I, she could be part of a strange scientific experiment to this day. <laughs> exactly. Or aliens. Sure. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then um, I wanted to ask you about um, keeping the pace. This is a very fast-paced book, uh, but also um, you've, you've got engaging characters, so you haven't cheated them because it, it, you know all the the fast-paced action in the world is not going to help you out if we don't care who it's happening to or who's uh, who's doing it. So, how did you go about keeping your pace tight, and what tips do you have for writers who want to write fast-paced action stories? Oh, that's a good question. It's funny because. When I wrote this book, it was probably before I started plotting more heavily. I, I'm, a, I'm a heavier plotter now, but um, I remember starting this novel with only one real guide in mind, and that was something that another author said, and I wish I knew who it was so I could attribute it to them, but they were like, you need to build up your characters and get them excited and feeling positive, and then you have to knock them off at the knees. And that's what the novel's about. You just spend time building them up and then dashing their hopes completely. And so that was in the forefront of my mind as I was writing that. As every time I built them up and had them think that something was going to happen, I was going to try to devastate them and make it seem like it was um, not going to happen. And I think as long as readers care about your characters they'll care about what the characters care about. Does that make sense? And then and then everything else, I think, comes easier. So then I think that they're invested in the stakes because they care that Kazu is invested in the stakes. And so, um, so I think that that's probably most important is to make sure that your character is likable and the things that they care about um, can be shared with the reader because they just care about your characters. So... Um, but I also think that like lags in text that can be caught by critique partners too, who can say, I don't think that this is important. I don't even know why you have this scene. Cause I do remember cutting quite a few scenes after they got to my editor because she was like, I don't know what this does. And then I'd be like, Oh, I don't know what it does either. <laughs> <laughs> and so being able to cut out that stuff that may be, um, you know, bogging down your story unnecessarily. And do you use a, a type critique group? Um, I do. At the time that I wrote Kazu, I had critique partners where I would swap stuff. Um, but I finally found um, a critique group and it feels it feels like the heavens have opened and it's like, oh, because it's hard to find a group that you match with, right? Like it's hard to find. I've been in different critique groups and it's hard because um, like there was one group where like people would come and go and it wasn't the same people. And sometimes I'd go and I'd read to 
people who were writing like these epic fantasies and didn't understand how middle grade worked. And so um, it's like, you know, it's, it's like finding a partner. It can be really hard to find a good match. And so I finally feel like I found this great critique group that we all write children's lit. And I feel like we're all kind of at the same place. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really great to be able to have that routine feedback. We meet every couple weeks. And so, yeah, that's been really nice. But I still have critique partners, too, who will swap whole manuscripts when I need it. Gotcha. How many uh, revisions on any given manuscript? I know you mentioned you got into the 20s. Uh, with Cassie, is that about standard? Do you have a number that you don't feel comfortable until you've reached? Or, um, Well, you know, writing a second Kazu book was really interesting because it was such a different experience. Because that first book, I took so long to polish and refine and you know, I had all this time to figure out whether or not it was perfect. But then the second book was on a deadline. And I almost felt like I was able to send it off to some critique partners. It was right about this time last year. So it was right before Thanksgiving. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Here it is, like right before the holidays. <laughs> and they were great. And they read it really fast because I was supposed to turn it in by the end of the year. They turned it around in a couple of weeks. And so I did get some feedback before I was able to polish it up a little bit. But I remember sending it to my editor just being like, I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> it was just a really rough draft. I had the ideas, um, but it just wasn't nearly as polished. And I think that that's something that a lot of writers, they're like, the second book is just not as polished. But thankfully, um, I love my editor. She, I call her my sole editor. I feel like she gets me and she's able to, she was, she was able to see where I was trying to go and give me just the right kind of feedback so that I could polish it. So the second book didn't go through nearly as many rounds, but I think the rounds that it did go through of revision were pretty um, intense and a lot was accomplished in them. So I don't know. I think it's just a, um, it's part of the process, right? You hopefully you get better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that because writing on deadline, it was just a whole new experience for me. And who is the name of your sole editor? Um, Hannah Allman with Disney. She's she's amazing. I just can't say enough good things about her. And Hannah Allman, if you're listening, I and a esteemed audience would love to chat with you and, and hear your thoughts on editing, if that was ever something you'd be interested in. Uh, and oh, I bet not, it was. Thanks for being great with uh, Shauna Holyoke. <laughs> and enjoy your life. I bet she, I'll, put, you know, I'll put in a good word for you. She's, yeah. That she's, would be swell. Yeah, she's good about stuff like that. It can be tricky sometimes. It's always, um, it's never easy to find a, a, a great guest, uh, but it's easier to find authors because, of course, you know, they've, they've all got paperbacks they need to shake and let's let's talk yeah. books and write. Uh, plus, we all love to talk uh, about uh, about our work and what we're doing. Uh, literary agents, same thing. They've got to get out there and say, hey, send me your manuscripts. Publicists, no problem. But editors can be a little bit trickier to find because there's so many great editors and they want to be left alone with their manuscripts doing the thing that they do best. Exactly. And I want to say, no, editors, come out just for a little bit. <laughs> come talk <laughs> to us. Share your wisdom. <laughs> well, I'll put a bug in her ear. 
So what uh, what can you tell us about Kazu Jones and the comic book criminal, which will be available April 21st of 2020? So this is one that I haven't pitched very much. So um, Kazu and her mystery squad um, have been hanging out at a comic book store called the Super Pickle, which belongs to March's uncle. And it's struggling and it has been for a while, like some comic book stores do. And he's really afraid that he's going to have to close up shop um, if, a lo- if a vandal who's targeting comic book stores hits his store. And so March is super passionate about catching this vandal who's targeting comic book stores. And so he convinces the team to try to track down this graffiti artist who's targeting comic book stores with anti-comic graffiti. And as they dig in a little bit more, they realize that this is actually tied to um, a comic book, a big comic book franchise that's been turned into a, a movie. Um, and this person's trying to get revenge and for something that happened in the past. And so um, they're trying to track it down before it reaches an explosive end. There's also um, kind of a personal element. Kazu's working on a second case where her mom is, um, in bed, she's sick with some a mystery illness and Kazu feels like she needs to figure out what's got her mom down so that she can solve it. And so there's, she's kind of running two cases at the same time. So she's gotta be Sherlock Holmes and Gregory House. That's right, that's right. And she, <laughs> the thing that I love about this book is you, um, you're a comic book, you're a comic book fan, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that you mentioned that, but so my family is super, super nerdy. We like role-playing games. We like comic books, comic book stores. We've been to like Comic-Con five different times, not like it's Fanex, the one that's in Utah. And, um, and my son for a while loved graffiti artists. And so I feel like I was able to put all that stuff into one book as kind of a celebration of all the things geeky that my family has loved. So that was kind of fun. Well, excellent. Are you, uh, without the family, just you, uh, seeking out all the comic books and all the comic movies and all that stuff? No, I didn't before I had sons. And then I had two boys who were each kind of obsessed with Marvel, and they both loved Spider-Man separately like i've made probably seven spider-man birthday cakes i have bought <laughs> probably 20 spider-man costumes and they've worn them out they've been yeah they've just they both loved spider-man and then marvel they both kind of expanded into loving marvel and then they met my husband before we got married and my husband is like super geek extraordinaire he had hundreds of comic books he has hundreds of board games and not He's kind of um, an elitist. He doesn't, like, we don't own Monopoly. We don't own Scrabble. It's, like, all, like, fancy games. A lot of them that he's gotten on Kickstarter. Um, yeah, he's super gamer. He also loves role-playing games. And so my sons, it was like, oh, my gosh, all this cool stuff. They got super excited. Um, my husband played like Magic the Gathering for a while. I don't know if you know that game, but he. Oh, yes, all anyways, too well, unfortunately. Yeah, so my son really got into that. 
my husband liked um, Doctor Who, so my son really got into Doctor Who. In fact, he dressed like the Tenth Doctor for like three years. It was <laughs> pretty intense. He's 18 now, and some people still call him the Doctor, and he gets a little mad. He says, "Mom, why did you let me do that?" <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we've yeah we've been through our um, geeky stretches, and it's. So it was fun. It was fun to include some of that stuff. Pro probably left to my own devices, I wouldn't have. But now that my family has kind of exposed me to it, I am. I do love all the Marvel movies and have my favorites. And so, yeah. It uh, exposed you to all the finer things. <laughs> yes. Yes. The things I never knew existed. So... <laughs> Things like uh, Magic the Gathering, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, any kind of role-playing game where I've dipped my toe in in the past uh, has been something I've kind of had to step back with because there's enough, uh, enough of that that's like writing and preparing your character and doing all of your research that's, I feel like I'm at work. This is supposed to be the fun thing I'm doing, and now I just have another novel going. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I think my husband, because my husband would like to write a novel, and I keep telling him, you've got to stop playing Dungeons and Dragons then, because I think that that's that becomes the creative outlet. And all of a sudden he's, yeah, spending all, he put together a campaign for us that we were doing. And um, yeah, it's just funny how much time he puts into it. And I just think maybe we shouldn't do this. You should write a novel instead. <laughs> Cause well, it is. I mean, I should point out that's probably a me problem. So obviously George RR R. Martin, uh, hugely successful dungeon master. Uh, I know That's Brian Keane uh, plays uh, Dungeons and Dragons pretty regularly and records his, some of his better episodes. Or uh, I'm, I never get tired of recommending other podcasts that a Steve <laughs> audience can be listening to you right now. Uh, but if you check out the horror show with Brian Keane, which is one of my favorites, um, every so often he'll do um, uh, he'll do a, a live uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, and that guy uh, writes much faster than I ever will. So it's totally possible to do. I just don't possess. Uh, enough, uh, enough free brain power to do it. <laughs> Let's see. I wanted to ask you quite a few things. I guess probably the next thing I should ask you uh, is, Shauna Holyoke, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? Um, I haven't, and I do. I think that I just think the universe is so big. How could there not be? Um, I can totally go down that rabbit hole. Like if there's a discovery channel, like, is this really, you know, does this really exist? I could totally get sucked into those and watch them um, and have watched quite a few. So yeah, I do think that they, I think that they're real. Excellent. No need for me to send you follow-up literature and convince you. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk uh, a little bit about your other series, Mighty Meg, uh, which is, I, I know that's under a pen name. I assume we're good to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, we're good to talk about it. Or should I be like, Mighty Who? I, I, I must yeah, have misspoke. Let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us uh, a little bit about your series, Mighty That was a project that Carrie got me. It's an IP project with Little B, which means it's their intellectual property. And so um, they basically give me the story and then I write it. And so the reason why I go under Sammy Griffin, it's not because it's like secret and I don't want people to know. It's just that I want to keep, I want to keep it separated from my own creative works um, because I didn't come up with a story idea for Mighty Meg. Um, 
they gave me a lot of creative license within each of the stories, but basically I kind of got an outline of what they wanted to see and then I just wrote the story. Um, but it's a fun little story about a series about an eight-year-old girl who gets a ring from her aunt um, from an, an archeological dig and, um, and it gives her superpowers. And it's about how she kind of grapples with that. She's kind of a shy kid. And so um, she's trying to figure out, well, what is she supposed to do with these superpowers? And how much is everybody supposed to know about? And they're super fun to practice, but do I really want anybody to know that I have them? And so it's kind of about her grappling with that. The illustrator is Micah Player, and he is phenomenal. Um, the illustrations are just adorable. And um, little B decided to go with like a color for each. So they're black and white with, with another um, primary color. And so each of the books is a different color. So it's kind of fun. It has a retro feel. Um, it was a fun project to work on. So, so how long it. does a project like that take uh, versus when you're writing uh, Cassie Jones and your own story, when you've got not a prescribed story, but, you know, uh, some pretty tight parameters to work within. Does that speed the process up or does it slow it down? Well, and that's like younger middle grade. And so they are shorter works. Like each book was about 4,000 pages long. So in total, I only had to write about 16,000 words. And um, so it was really, it was, it was different at, and you know, it's funny because when I went to graduate school, I wrote short stories and now like to try to imagine writing short stories again after writing novels, it's, like, how do you, I don't know if I can do that. I kind of felt like that with Mighty Meg. I was like, I don't know if I can tell a story in 4,000 words. But um, once I got into the flow and um, read a couple chapter books again, because they sent me some that I could, that I could read, I, I was able to get the, the rhythm down and, and able to, to write them. Um, but yeah, they went a lot faster. Um, I think they had me turning... Um, like two in every couple months and then we'd go through rounds of revisions and so yeah it was pretty fast I think I was able to write all four in like six months oh wow yeah right along. so well here's a burning question that I have to ask if you had a magic viking ring that gave you superpowers <laughs> how would you use it I don't think I would be as responsible as Meg. Like Meg is thinking about all these, you know, I can help people. I can make a difference. I think I would be like jumping all over the place because she can jump super high. I think I'd be like, I want to jump to Disneyland. Like I would probably, I would misuse the powers. I think, I think that's the honest truth of it. Even now. So that'd be at least the first week, just a week of jumping. Yeah. Like, help me, help me. No, I can't. I'm jumping. Help yourself. I'm jumping. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. Misuse of power. <laughs> That's my fantasy, uh, is to get superpowers and then to use them in no productive way. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'd fly, I'd fly out of the office instead of drive. Ah, that cuts down on the commute. That's good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> then I'd fly back home to my PlayStation and my book, and that would be my evening. Go back to your lair. <laughs> well, you definitely you have to get a lair with a bigger yeah. TV and more bookshelves. Are you going to put any That's crime right. fighting stuff in here at some point? No, no, more books. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You got to have time to read. 
Who has time this long for over time? there where yeah. my uh, crime computer could go? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I, something I read on your blog that fascinated me, I wanted to make sure I asked you about, uh, is that you're actively working to transition from a pantser to a plotter. Uh, you've got different books you've been reading and breaking down and different things. How is that going? And, and is it possible to become a, a, an ardent plotter when you've been a pantser? Um, the truth is, I don't know if I knew myself well enough to say I was, you know, a pantser to my core. I don't know if I knew that well enough about myself um, because I did start out writing short stories and um, I never plotted those. So I think I just assumed that if I wanted to write novels, I wouldn't have to plot those either. And so I would just write. And then I realized if I do that, there's a ton more work on the other end revising and that maybe I could cut back on that a little bit. Um, so really it's all about being lazy. I'm just like, maybe I can cut back <laughs> on some of that revision time if I plot a little bit. But I do find that I can't, cause I know people who plot down to the scene and like they know how many scenes they have in each chapter. And then after they plot and even just plotting takes them like tens of thousands of words. They're like, oh, I just finished my outline and it's 30,000 words. And I'm like, I can't even imagine that. But then they know, okay, so this is about how many page, about how many words a scene will be. And they can project how long their novel will be just by their outline. And I, I am not that way. I cannot plot um, to that detail. But I do find that so like loose, like looser beat sheets, like, I don't know, have you heard of Dan Wells' seven-point story structure? Uh, I've heard of it. I can't teach it. Yeah, it's on, it's on YouTube, and there's a series of videos, but I started with Dan Wells' seven-point story structure, and then I kind of graduated to Save the Cat, which was originally intended for screenwriters. There's also a Save the Cat um, for writing novels, but I, I haven't read that one. I've read the one for screen. For screenwriters and so then I so then I started using that beat sheet and felt like maybe that was too much for me so then I created like a Frankenstein beat sheet and I put together Dan Wells basically what I did was I took his seven points and then I added three from Save the Cat that I felt like were necessary so it works for me it's really loose if I get so that I include too much detail then it's not as interesting for me to write there does need to be some sense of discovery for me or else I'm not interested in writing it anymore because I know too much. I 100% relate. I've written one complete outline in my life where I knew every last thing about the story and I have not written that book. And you didn't write the book. Yeah, <laughs> see, exactly. It's like, okay, I already I did what I came here to do. I know how it ends. And so read yeah. the outline, people. It's great. <laughs> outline is amazing so that could be a new genre outlines <laughs> get the outline here for people who don't want to read the whole novel so yeah but that's exactly how I am so I have to really loosely plot it so that I know where it's going and I can kind of stay on track and I don't go off on tangents and do weird things um, and write whole novels without writing the novel I had intended to write um, so that keeps me on track but yeah doesn't kill it for me well, now that you're outlining and you're, you know, writing the future books for your, you know, for your career, as opposed to this is just a fun book that I'm writing just for me that I love. Um, 
at what point do you get Carrie involved in the process and start thinking about what the strategy is going to be? So that's a really good question because that was so new for me. So I wrote, I wrote Kazu, the first Kazu and that sold. And um, they wanted me to wait before I gave them an outline because they bought the book two years before it was published. And so they were kind of like, we don't want to see book two for another year. And so I was like, um, but, but they wanted to approve it for improve, approve it first, like whatever direction I was going. So I felt like I couldn't really start it cause I didn't want to write a whole novel that they would be like, no, thanks. Try something else. So I started to write something completely different and I didn't tell Carrie about it. <laughs> I just was like, do to do, I'm going to write my own thing. And so then, um, I sprang that on her. She liked it and wanted me to do some revisions but that's when it kind of clicked and i was like i probably should tell carrie before i write the whole thing so that she can let me know because she's the one with all this um you know this knowledge about what's working in the market and what's you know what's um you know what's what wouldn't work and so just about a month ago i finished the revisions on that book that I didn't tell her about and that I sprang on her and that she asked me to revise. So I sent her the completed version of that to look at. And then I said, okay, so I want to start writing something new. Here are three pitches for three different ideas I've had. And that process alone was really interesting because I've had two ideas had been kicking around in my head for months and they were pretty well developed. I had, I had like, envisioned key scenes and I had named some characters and I had given them a setting and they were pretty well developed. But in the writing of those two, one of the ideas, I didn't like it anymore. It was so interesting. So I wrote the pitch for the first one and I still like that one. I wrote the pitch for the second one and I was like, ooh, I don't want to, I didn't even want to write it anymore. After writing the pitch, it was the weirdest thing. So I thought, well, I guess I need to give her options. I don't, I don't want to write the second one. I'm guessing she's not, if I don't like it, she's not going to like it. So I, I pitched another idea for a scary story, which I'm not, that's not my thing really. Um, but I pitched this idea that I had for a scary story that I'd gotten over the summer. And so I sent all my pitches off to her and she picked the scary story, which I was surprised. I thought she was going to pick the other one that I liked more and that was a little bit more developed. But um, yeah, she said scary one. And I was like, huh. And I started writing it. And um, I don't know if it's because like I've tapped into the muse and like it's, you know, I feel so inspired and it's coming so easily to me because of that. Or if it's because it's super tropey. And so I'm using all these tropes and it's like, yeah, this sounds good. I've never written a scary story before. I'm just like writing all these tropes. I don't know. We'll see. But my critique group will see it tomorrow and they'll let me know if it's just tropey and that's why. But um, yeah, so I sent her three pitches and then she pitched, then she picked one and that's the one that I went with. Gotcha. gotcha. This be a spooky middle grade story or uh, older audience? Um, it's middle it's middle grade. Like I started writing it and it felt a little older. I had my husband read it. My poor husband, he has to read stuff all the time. And he felt like it was probably middle grade still. So, um, so yeah, I think I'm going to go with middle grade. I think that they're at least when I talk to kids 
And when I hear what other teachers and librarians are asking kids they want more of, kids want scary stories. They want they want more scary stories. So that's um, so I'm hoping that's like filling a need that exists out there. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. <laughs> oh, I love middle grade uh, scary uh, stories. So send me an arc when it becomes available. Come back and we'll we'll go through it. We'll have a good time. Okay. <laughs> if it's not too tropey, let's hope it's not too tropey. <laughs> And is there a, a genre beyond that that you're still yearning to write? Um, I would like to write for young adult. I know that's not a genre, but I, I really would like to figure out young adult and write something for young adult. But um, fantasy is another one. I'm not a huge fantasy reader, um, but I'd like to try. I'd like to try it someday or maybe magic, magical realism. That would be kind of fun. But um, I'm super comfortable in contemporary. And so I'd like to kind of break out of that a little bit. So I loved, I, I want to read um, your Robot Bees story. That just sounds, I love it. Sounds so good. And in fact, the other story that I pitched to Carrie had a robot in it. And so um, really kind of obsessed with, with robots and, and it was a fighting robot. So it was kind of like um, BB-8 meets, um, I don't know what it meets, but. <laughs> <laughs> Another battle droid. Yeah. So anyway, but it was, uh, yeah, someday I'll write that, but I'll have to read yours before I write that one that has robots in it. So. Uh, I'm always recommending people read my books for, for God's sake, never write a book unless you've read mine first esteemed audience. <laughs> so that's, that's right. Good. That's good advice. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to make sure I ask you about marketing. Um, so what uh, what when in the process of a book do you begin actively marketing it? Uh, and then what have you found to be the most useful techniques of marketing that you've used so far? Oh, I don't know if I know a lot about what's useful. I can tell you what I've tried. Marketing kind of um, overwhelms me. I think it overwhelms a lot of authors. Um, I don't know. I'd like to hear what your tips are because um, it's tricky, I think, with middle grade because with middle grade, the gatekeepers are the teachers and the librarians. And so you can't really directly market to um, kids, at least not easily, I don't think. And so... I started, like for the first book, I started doing lots of social media stuff probably about six months before Kazu came out, the first the first book. I, um, I went on some blogs. I did a blog tour around the time that she came out. And then um, I started to schedule school visits in my area. And um, yeah, so most of what I've done has probably been social media and um, I did a pre-order campaign, but I've heard that those aren't super um, successful, especially like with middle grade, because you're not actually getting your target audience. You're hopefully at least hitting teachers and librarians. But I've learned a little bit better about what um, hashtags to use to try to um, reach out to more teachers and librarians on Twitter. Um, and this isn't something that I do before a book comes out, but it's something that I've started to do, one, because I care about the cause, and two, because I think it gets the right followers on my list. And so um, every month I'll have a book giveaway. 
for teachers and librarians mostly um, to follow and retweet. And I, that's my addiction is like finding good books. And so back in the day when my kids were younger, I tried to create this huge library for us that we could have in our basement. They could come and take these books and read them and then put them back. And um, now they're older. And so I don't have anybody to really get books for. So I love to look for secondhand books that are in really good shape. Um, or sometimes if I have an ARC or even if I buy a book and I've read it and now I'm ready to give it away, although that's kind of hard, I'll make a stack of books that I offer as a Twitter giveaway. And so I feel like that gets me the kind of followers that I'm looking for, the teachers and the librarians. Um, and, and then hopefully they're paying attention when I tweet about, you know, Kazu too. Um, so that's something that I've done that I feel like it, at least it works to grow my audience to the right demographic. Um, and then I love school visits. I'm not sure how successful they are, but I love them because I love interacting with kids. I love interacting with potential readers and um, just kind of soaking up that energy because I think it helps me as a writer of middle grade. Um, getting into schools, I think, can be hard in the beginning. Um, I've been able to get into quite a few schools locally, and then I did some school visits in Utah. So, um, yeah, I'm always looking to follow other writers who do that well. And so I partnered recently with an author. Her name is Janet Sumner um, Johnson. And we did school visits together. And that was really fun because I felt like I could learn from her approach on how um, she delivers. And then I did a signing with her and she had all these fun games that she had kids play and they loved it and they had a ton of fun. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. So I think it helps too, to kind of watch other writers and to see what they're doing and not to be embarrassed to admit that you don't have it figured out and that you can learn something from one another. I think that's super helpful too. So how did you go about, um, approaching schools and pitching yourself as an author to come and visit? So at first I tried calling and tried talking to principals and that didn't work. Um, usually the secretaries, because the secretaries I think are trying to buffer the principals and, and not overwhelm them with too much stuff. And so sometimes they'd let me leave a message. Um, sometimes I would leave them a message, but I hardly ever heard back. So then I started to try email and I felt like that wasn't working really well either. Um, so I started to show up and I had a little bit more luck, like showing up and talking to librarians. I found out that they're usually the ones that are scheduling the school visits, usually, not always, but usually. Um, and then I got most successful when I just posted on Facebook. I'd like to do school visits in the area. Do I know any teachers? And so usually my teachers would be like, oh, we'd love to have you come to my school. And as soon as you have an in with a teacher, I feel like it's so much better. And um, so like in the beginning, I feel like I was just shooting in the dark. I didn't know what I was doing. And then I realized that um, in making a connection with my bookseller at Barnes and Noble, we only have a Barnes and Noble here. We don't have any other bookstores, which is sad. Um, Barnes and Noble is great, but it's sad that we don't have more, you know, indie bookstores. But when I connected with my bookseller, she was like, so... I interact with teachers and I can send them your information or I can give you their information. So it just helps for me to have that connection within the school and to be able to say, 
so-and-so, you know, or sometimes they'll say they'll, I've had friends that totally arrange my school visits and they're like, okay, you just have to show up on this day and 45 minutes and they'll be ready for you. And um, so that's nice or at least to have them give me a contact and that's been helpful. And then, like I said, my bookseller who she's, she's always kind of like, so this school would like a school visit, you know, so that's helpful too, but it's trying to figure out how to arrange them so that they're, you know, not just fun, but they're also beneficial to you. And they like streamline into an event, either a signing or they do pre-orders so that you can sign books there, but something that helps, um, do more than just entertain kids, um, but also kind of help to, you know, bolster your career a little bit too. So that's been tricky for me to figure out. So have you been able to get people to agree to buy a certain number of books or is that still being negotiated for how that's going to be? That's well, and that's the tricky thing is my area is used to, um, there have been a lot of authors who have come in here for free. And so they're used to just having authors come for free. They're not used to pre-orders. And so when I um, presented with my friend Janet, she was like, we need to do pre-orders. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. But you could tell that they weren't used to it. Um, so I think it's just probably going to take some time. Um, I think that I am starting to, I'm going to start to say that unless, unless you do pre-orders and unless we get a certain number, um, you'll just have to pay a fee for a school visit. Um, Cause I think what's, I think it's kind of damaging when we do offer our services for free because I think it hurts other authors too. Um, I have a friend here who there was a big author who was coming in and she talked to her local school and said, you guys should do a fundraiser and have her come and do a school visit. And, and she was like, oh, I'm just going to call her up and see if she'll do a visit for free. And this is like, you know, a best-selling author who's used to, you know, getting paid a certain amount. And because people are doing visits for free, they expect that this author should just do a visit for free too. So I think that it's harmful when we do visits for free too much because I think it um, kind of cheapens what all authors are trying to accomplish. Does that make sense? Sure. So, um, so I, and I think all authors decide how to do it. I'm a debut author, so I don't feel like I am going to ask, especially locally, I'm not going to ask for money, but I do feel like at least being able to get pre-orders um, makes it worthwhile for me. So we'll see. It's still, I'm trying to figure it out. It's tricky. Come on, teachers. You'd pay 75 bucks to have a substitute teacher come in for a day. You could pay at least that for an author to come in and entertain your children and teach them something valuable about reading. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, but it's fun. I, like I said, I love interacting with the kids. It's a fun energy. Um, they're excited. You're excited. It's fun. Yeah, take a shot. It's uh, getting a little late. Uh, we're recording this in the evening, esteemed audience. And I know that I'm about 10, 15 minutes away from starting to do some of this nodding off stuff. And we don't want that. That's not good podcasting. Uh, so before we get to that point, why don't we call it a day and I'll ask you my, my final question. 
Uh, my final question, I usually try to keep this consistent because it's a good catch-all for all the things you could have told me if only I were smart enough to have asked you. Um, what uh, are What's something or multiple things that if you could go back uh, to the Shauna that began your career, uh, back when you were first getting started, if you could have told yourself some things that would have made that path easier for you, what would you tell young you and what would you tell uh, all the uh, future Shauna uh, Holly Oaks that are listening? Um, so I would, I would have told myself, you always hate the project at some point. You will always hate it and think that it was the worst idea you've ever had, but you need to push through to the end because I think it's so easy. Every author I've talked to gets to a point in their manuscript where they just hate it and they don't, want to write it anymore. And the new shiny sparkly idea that's been rattling around in their head, they want to write that instead because that will be perfect once you start writing it. But um, I've learned that you just need to push through that feeling and just keep writing through to the end so that you can finish. I think that there are so many authors who have given up on projects to go to a new better idea that they think that they're having um, without realizing that I think everybody feels like that. It's some point in time they just hate the project they're working on and they want to move on so i would tell myself just write it out keep going um you might hate that chunk of 10,000 20,000 words i don't know you might have to completely rewrite it but keep going because um only when you're done and you have something worth like you have something to revise do you have something of worth so that's what i would tell myself keep your butt in the chair and keep writing it until it's done I don't think I'd trust a book that I hadn't reached a point of hating it before it was completely done. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't bear my soul properly with that one. Put that back on the shelf. Let's write one I can really hate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't hate this enough. <laughs> Shutter, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, stalk you, become your best online friend, and buy all your books? Um, so I can be found on Twitter and on Instagram at Shauna Holyoke. And also www.shawnaholyoak.com. That's my website. And that will lead you to any of my social media accounts. Um, and then my book can be found on Amazon, on um, any of the indie um, bookstores, and um, Barnes & Noble. And as always, esteemed audience, uh, you can find me at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, or and or get your copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Get both. They're free. It'll be a good evening. Um, Shana, thank you so much again for, for making the time. This has been an absolute pleasure talking with you this evening. Yeah, thanks. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, and and I'm going to download uh, that for myself. Excellent. When the uh, spooky book comes out, send me a copy. Let's do this again. It'll be oh, a good time. I will. I will. Okay, sounds good. Uh, and then I always ask our guests to sign us off with the uh, very ninja-like sign-off phrase, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Just say hi-ya or hi-ya what have you. Hi-ya and what have you. Oh, you know okay. What? It's up to interpretation. You sign us off how you, fee how you see fit. Okay. Hi-ya and what have you.